Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Professor Stephen Vladek to discuss his new book, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic, published by Basic Books in 2023. Many people are familiar with the United States Supreme Court's Merit Docket, Each case follows detailed and professional proceedings that include formal written and oral arguments. The justices' decisions provide lengthy arguments and citations. They're freely available to the public, press, policymakers, lawmakers, judges, and scholars. When the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, they ruled publicly and the press covered it extensively. But Professor Stephen Vladek's new book highlights that 99% of the court's decisions are, quote, unseen, unsigned, and almost always unexplained, unquote, on the shadow docket. State and federal policies and constitutional rights are affected by decisions that the Supreme Court makes behind closed doors. There are no opinions, no citations, and often observers have little idea which justices supported the action. The term shadow docket was coined by law professor William Bowd in 2015, and Professor Vladek sees a recent, radical, and concerning shift in how the shadow docket has been deployed in recent years. His remarkable book traces the shadow docket's longer history to explain what is the shadow docket, where did it come from, and how the court has radically departed from past practice to decide more and more cases out of the public eye. Vladek argues that the shadow docket has become a norm rather than an exception, and that procedural change impacts constitutional rights and public policy on a large scale, including asylum eligibility, abortion, marriage equality, voting rights, and building a border wall. Professor Vladek insists that regardless of your individual political leanings, the court's increasing manipulation of the shadow docket threatens our shared constitutional system and should alarm any American who believes in the value of the Supreme Court as an independent and legitimate institution. Professor Vladek's impressively researched and remarkably accessible book uh, employs historical analysis and case studies in clear and precise prose. This is a book for scholars, students, and anyone interested in policy and politics. Professor Stephen Vladek holds the Charles Allen Wright Chair at the University of Texas School of Law. In addition to his extensive legal scholarship, Vladek has argued three cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, co-hosts the National Security Law Podcast, and is editor and author of One First, a popular weekly Substack newsletter about the Supreme Court. And I am delighted to welcome Steve Vladek to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me, Susan. It's a real treat to be with you. Steve, let's start with some of the basic background on the shadow docket and, and why you see this often ignored procedure as crucial to American politics and law. You know, the textbook version of bringing a case to the Supreme Court imagines this action that violates the Constitution and the lower courts find the facts and 
they issue careful rulings and these rulings can be appealed through the bench and the federal bench and then the final arbiter is Supreme Court. And, and many of us teach the court you know, to our students as emphasizing how the lawyers, how friends of the court submit these detailed briefs and that the justices and their clerks read them, that intense oral arguments allow the justices to question those attorneys. And these oral arguments are available to the public. And after this long process, they vote and they write these opinions, sometimes over 100 pages long, with these detailed justifications for their votes. But your book says we need to look somewhere else. We need to not look at the celebrated public process. We need to look uh, at how the court is actually making a lot of law on the shadow docket. So let's just start with what is the shadow docket? How is it different from this process that students and scholars often learn about? So, you know, what you've just described, the merits docket, is the end of litigation. It's the last step in how cases get to the Supreme Court for decision making. Um, There's at least one and often two steps that come before it. So, you know, most of the Supreme Court's docket is discretionary, meaning that the justices are choosing whether or not to take up appeals from lower courts. There's only a tiny, tiny subset of cases that the justices must hear. And so right off the bat, that process, the certiorari process, or the cert stage, as it's often shorthanded among, you know, Supreme Court nerds, um, that all, Susan, is on the shadow docket, right? That's all these obscure you know, inscrutable procedural orders from the Supreme Court that can often have really monumental consequences um, in the real world. You know, one of the things the book talks about is how it was actually through denials of certiorari that the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage in quite a few states, more states, actually, as it turns out, than the fancy merits ruling we're all used to talking about in 2015 in Obergefell. So the sort of, the if you think of the sort of the end of the case in the Supreme Court as step three, the cert stage is step two. And then there are step one. And step one is what's often shorthanded as the emergency docket. Um, and this is when we're not yet up to the full appeal being ready for the Supreme Court, but when a party that lost at a very, very preliminary stage in the lower court wants the status quo altered while they appeal, wants the status quo on their side. Um, so if they're challenging a government policy, they want the policy blocked. Um, or if they're the government and a policy was blocked, they want it unblocked for the duration of the appeal. Um, And those come to the Supreme Court as emergency applications. And, you know, until really about six years ago, those were exceptionally rare. It's not that the court never had them. It's that they tended to only come up once in a blue moon outside of the more regular context of the death penalty, right? Outside of the flurry of last minute applications the court always gets when someone is trying to block their execution. The, the shift, Susan, and, and what really impelled me to, to write the book is starting about six years ago. We saw the Supreme Court being asked to and agreeing to um, intervene at the emergency stage at step one a lot more often than it ever had before in contexts with far broader real world effects on all of us. Um, and as the data set got larger, as there were more of these in ways that looked really hard to rationalize um, as being based upon any neutral set of legal principles, um, as opposed to the partisan political preferences of the justices, where we had no opinions from the court to you know, convince us that there were principles behind these decisions as opposed to politics. 
Um, throughout the book, uh, and this is an exceptionally well-researched book. This is the kind of book that if you're a scholar and you go through the footnotes, you will recognize literature from multiple fields and primary documents. I mean, this is this is in the weeds. But in the text, in the text, and I really, I, I mean that anyone should be giving this book as a gift to any person who really cares about politics. You don't have to read the footnotes to get everything you need out of this book, I think. I, again, unless you're a scholar. But throughout the text, you always come back to the real world significance of this procedure. And you've mentioned Obergefell, but I, I want you to go into the weeds just a little bit more on any case you want. It, it could be what you just wrote about with uh, Leah Littman and the Washington Post on Voting Rights Act, but, but how people can understand how it is that this discretionary moment can stop law from going forward or allow something to go forward that a lower court has already said is unconstitutional? Sure. I mean, so, you know, I think the the the, the recent Alabama redistricting case is a great example of this because um, as we're recording, it's, you know, it's recently in the news. Um, so, you know, after the 2020 census, um, every state with more than one House district, and it's 44 states, redrew their congressional district maps. Um, many of which, you know, were based on various forms of partisan and in some cases racial gerrymandering. Um, and in a number of states, those maps were challenged by voters on the ground that they violated the Voting Rights Act, that um, especially in southern states, that the legislatures had drawn these districts in a way to dilute the electoral power of minority and especially black voters. Um, and Alabama was like the front lines for this. So Alabama has seven House seats. Um, and in the maps that were drawn by the legislature in early 2022, um, there was there was one so-called majority minority district into which the legislature had packed um, most of the black population of Alabama, even though 27 percent of Alabama's population is black, um, which suggests, you know, at least two out of seven uh, if we're doing the math. So um, what's remarkable about that case is that there was a, a Voting Rights Act challenge. Two different lower courts sided with the challengers and issued injunctions requiring Alabama to redraw its maps and Susan to redraw the maps to create a second you know, minority opportunity district, a second district that would probably have been a majority minority district. Um, I think it's not speaking out of school, given historical voting patterns in Alabama, to think that second seat would have been a safe Democratic seat as opposed to a safe Republican seat. Um, and this was based on the district court's application of a 1986 Supreme Court decision called Thornburg versus Gingles. All of that's by the book. Alabama, which lost in both of those cases, appealed to the Supreme Court, as was its right. But it also asked the Supreme Court to step in while the appeal was pending and to put the maps back into effect. And in February 2022, the court, by a five to four vote, did exactly that. It issued a stay of both of the injunctions from the district courts with no explanation, um, with no majority opinion, where the court allowed Alabama to use its unlawful maps. Um, and that's remarkable, Susan, even in the abstract. I mean, the book talks about that case a lot, yeah. but it's especially remarkable now that the Supreme Court has actually decided Alabama's appeal and sided with the district courts and said, yes, the district courts were right. The maps were illegal. Um, and the reason why that's such a big deal is because Alabama got to use its illegal map 
in the 2022 midterms in a way that almost certainly changed the composition of its House delegation from, you know, what would have probably been five Republicans and two Democrats to six Republicans and one Democrat. We'll play this out, right? There's another case from Louisiana just a couple months later where the same thing happens. Lower courts block Louisiana's map, tell Louisiana to redraw the map, and the Supreme Court puts the map back into effect. Um, There's a case in Georgia where a district judge says, I think this map violates Section 2, but look what the Supreme Court just did. I shouldn't block it. And there are other examples in Ohio and South Carolina. So that pretty quickly, Susan, we get from this unsigned, unexplained order in February 2022 to seven, at least, and maybe as many as 10 seats in the House of Representatives that are controlled by Republicans as opposed to Democrats. Um, If you consider that the current Republican majority in the House is 10 seats, meaning five districts go the other way and it's a tie, um, it's not that ridiculous a statement to suggest that unsigned, unexplained orders from the Supreme Court were directly responsible for the Republicans' current control of the House. So, you know, there's a pretty powerful example of how these orders produce real-world effects. No, and it was fabulous reading the book as this decision was coming down, because as you wrote the book, you did not have the insight of the way that this voting rights case was going to go, yet you lay out that Chief Justice Roberts in 2013 had indicated his discomfort with the shadow docket in some way. A lot of this has happened under the Roberts Roberts court. Um, Where does Chief Justice Roberts stand on this? How public has he been? How how do we know? How did you know that he has perhaps some, some, some discomfort with how this is being done? Yeah, he's told us. I mean, so, you know, I mentioned that the February 2022 ruling was five to four. Um, You know, folks who are sort of careful court watchers are trying to figure out already something's wrong about that because it's a 6-3 court. Well, it was Chief Justice Roberts who was in dissent with the other three, you know, with the three Democratic appointees, even though it was Roberts who had written the big anti-Voting Rights Act ruling for the court in 2013 in Shelby County. And, you know, Roberts is a remarkable figure here because that Alabama case in 2022 was actually the second time um, he had loudly dissented with the Democratic appointees from a 5-4 shadow docket ruling by the conservatives. He had also quietly dissented from a couple of others. Um, and so what's really, really striking um, for, for sort of the, the role of Roberts is when he's writing Susan, and he writes in most of these cases, he is at once expressing sympathy to the bottom line that the conservatives are reaching, but hostility to the way that they're getting there. And so it's a very process-oriented objection, whereas the more liberal justices are actually dissenting on both grounds. And, you know, I I say in the book, I I think it's really remarkable. You know, there's a tendency on the part of those who are more sympathetic to the current conservative majority to dismiss criticisms like mine as just sort of unhappy liberals complaining about a conservative court. And, you know, when you hold out John Roberts as one of the critics that – response doesn't hold up. Um, you know, it's, it, it's for as, as damning an indictment as it may be for people like me to point out all of the ways in which the conservative majority is taking these procedural shortcuts. I think it actually hits a lot harder coming from John Roberts. And, you know, he hasn't always been dissenting in these cases, but Susan, when he has, it's been for the same reasons that he just doesn't think this is the way the court should be using these emergency applications. 
Well, and William Bowd, who coined the term shadow docket, is no liberal. He's a conservative who also finds this disturbing. And I, I think one of the things that you do very, very well in this book is separate uh, just Chief Justice Roberts' remarkable conservatism from his feelings about procedure, because they're two different things. And sometimes in the press, they get mixed up as that he's being, he's a moderate. He's never a moderate, I don't think, on, on anything. But what he is, is focused on precedent and on procedure. And that is what would mean that he would do something slightly different in Dobbs, for example, than somebody like um, Justice Alito. Well, and, and, and his first big dissent in this context was in the SB8 case, the Texas abortion ban case, um, where he was also, you know, where he wrote separately to say, you know, I have grave concerns about this Texas law that we should not be, uh, you know, allowing to go into effect just based on the wacky posture in which it comes to us. So, you know, I, I guess I, I wrote this book hoping to appeal not just to folks who are already predisposed to be suspicious of the current court. I mean, I, I have some challenges to overcome. The subtitle is deliberately provocative on that front. I, I accuse the court of undermining the republic. But I really think that, you know, it's it's not for nothing that these criticisms have been leveled not just by people like me, but by people like him. And just what, one last quick point on this. I mean, there's, there's a less well-known April 2022 ruling in a Clean Water Act case um, that didn't get nearly as much public attention, where the court once again, grants emergency relief, this time to put back into effect a Trump-era uh, environmental regulation that, you know, I, I think I can say without getting into too much trouble, um, reduces the sort of the limits on power plants when it comes to pollutants. Um, and it, that one was also five to four. And this time, Roberts didn't just dissent, um, but he actually signed on to Justice Elena Kagan's dissenting opinion so that for the first time, he wasn't just on the opposite side of the conservatives, he was actually affirmatively endorsing Kagan's critique that the other five conservatives were abusing the shadow docket. And I think that, you know, that was to me a really important moment because it suggested that even within the court, the justices are not just dividing on what, what the appropriateness of this behavior along the sort of traditional ideological lines. I also think there's a second way that your book is is non-ideological. You're quite critical of liberal justices in the past who, in fact, used the shadow docket for their own ideological um, uh, um, policy and rights um, projects. And so you know, I, I actually think that you do a very good job of of doing both those things. I think that you are saying that under this court, which is extremely conservative, we have seen this explosion on the shadow docket, but you don't, you tell a much longer story. And that story has a lot of, um, uh, villain is too strong, but it has a lot of people who contributed. And, and let me do a little bit of the history. You, you know, your book is very focused on the fact that the Supreme Court didn't originally have these discretionary powers to decide which cases it would decide or how it would decide them. And you're very focused on that. The framers, uh, you know, quote unquote, didn't assign the court this level of discretion. And your first substantive chapter focuses on President and Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, William um, Howard Taft. And I'm wondering if you just tell us a little bit about the power of the Supreme Court in the 1790s and how it is that Taft changed the court so extensively. 
I, I love Taft. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, we, 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 and I, you know, I'm, I, I come at this from the law professor side, not the political scientist side, but certainly the law professors have done a gross disservice to Taft um, in how little we teach him in law school. So um, the Supreme Court, the, the, the famous quote from Federalist, I think it's 78, is that the court's going to be the least dangerous branch. This is Hamilton promising everyone not to worry about this independent court. Um, and part of what made it so undangerous was not just that it depended upon the political branches for enforcement of its judgments, but it depended upon the political branches for everything else, including even what its docket would be. Um, something that I think a lot of folks don't appreciate is that from 1790, when the court first meets, until 1891, um, the court's docket was entirely of Congress's dictation, meaning you know the court had to hear cases Congress told it to hear and couldn't hear cases Congress didn't tell it to hear. And that was it. Um, there was no discretion. There was no certiorari. There was no flexibility. It was just Congress controlled the justice's docket, period. And, you know, Susan, that had a lot of effects, not all of which were good, um, but certainly were they were effects um, where as federal judicial dockets in general exploded after the Civil War, they do so for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, that meant that the justices were besieged with cases so that by the late 1880s, the court has somewhere north of 1,800 active cases on its docket at any given point um, and is, by some accounting, three years behind um, in, in getting its work done. That's not, obviously, a sustainable system. So Congress starts in 1891 tweaking and sort of fiddling at the margins of the court's docket. But the real sort of push, the real movement um, is led by Taft. Um, who starts sounding these alarm bells while he's running for president in 1908. Uh, because Taft, you know, he, even while he's running for president, he has his eyes on other other jobs. <laughs> um, and while he's president, he, he keeps talking about this. Taft, Taft's problem and Taft's vision of the court is Taft was concerned that the court was functioning just as a Supreme Court of Appeals, basically the highest court in the court system, but no different um, from any other court of appeals, just except that it went last. And Taft wanted to transform it into more of a constitutional court, a court that sat above and apart from the fray of ordinary judicial business, a court that was not, you know, sort of under siege um, from disputes that in Taft's view were beneath the dignity of the justices. And so Taft starts pushing for a series of reforms um, some of which are very superficial, like just getting the court out of the Capitol, which is where it sat until 1935. Taft's the first one who really loudly pushes for the Supreme Court to have its own building, but some of which are jurisdictional. And so Taft really sort of sees certiorari as the way of consolidating the court's power, because if the justices can pick and choose which cases they're going to decide, they can really set their own agenda. And so it's Taft who's instrumental um, in getting Congress to, you know, once he's chief justice in 1921, in working behind the scenes to get Congress to adopt what becomes the Judiciary Act of 1925. Um, and, you know, Susan, as you know, that act um, is known to posterity as the judge's bill because the justices wrote it um, and pushed for it and testified in favor of it. And this really was the you know, to, to quote Ed Hartnett, um, a fantastic Supreme Court scholar at, at Seton Hall, you know, February 13th, 1925, the day Coolidge signs that bill into law, is the day the modern Supreme Court is born. Um, and it's born in Taft's image. 
um, which is a court with discretion over its docket, a court that can sort of pick and choose its cases. And Susan, I don't think it's a surprise that when we think of modern constitutional law, just about all that postdates um, that enactment. And none of that is in the original document or in the uh, amended document uh, after uh, the Civil War. It's actually very Hamiltonian in its desire to give the Supreme Court more power. You know, the, the Constitution does not directly grant judicial review in the way that the court has come to evolve uh, through, for example, Marbury versus Madison. One thing I wanted to add about this chapter, uh, Steve, is that I think of technology as a character in this book. You know, you 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 start the book on Twitter, but as you're talking, uh, so so your own process is very very 21st century. But part of what you trace in this chapter is that these justices cannot email things to each other. They, they cannot talk to each other on the telephone. Sometimes they're, they're unreachable. People are, are going to remote places to hand people documents. So this is kind of part and parcel of the, the, the shift to modernity that, that, they're, that, they're, that they're dealing with. And I just, I love the way technology plays the role throughout the book. And, 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 and technology and, and frankly, Susan, architecture. I mean, right. I mean, you know, I mean, Taft was, Taft was obsessed with the significance of getting the court out of the capital, um, not just sort of physically, but metaphorically, um, right? Because from his perspective, having the court in its own building would be the most powerful, visible symbol of its independence um, compared to, you know, depending upon Congress to keep the lights on and the water running. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's uh, chapter one, you know, the sort of the, the Taft chapter. Um, I really, really had fun writing it because I think it's a history that only a few people really, really know. And I think it actually puts the modern court and some of the debates we're having today about the court into such important historical context just to say, listen, whether you like what Taft was pushing for or not. And there's room for debate on that. Let's at least all, you know, accept that this is a modern innovation, that this was not the court that the Judiciary Act of 1789 created. It was not the court that we had for the better part of 135 years. Um, and so, you know, that's that's not to say it's bad. It's just to say that, you know, as we think about conversation about court reform today, we ought not lose sight of the fact that the court as it exists today is much more in Taft's image than in John Marshall's um, or John Jay's or James Madison's. And, and that that's an important part of the story. And you don't hit this over the head in the book, the reader's head in the book, but you know we're in the midst of a conversation about originalism and tradition. And where do we begin tradition? And I think one of the points that you make very, very well in the book is that if you begin tradition with 1789, then we should be talking about the court very differently than if we begin with 1891. So it's very, this word tradition, what does it mean? Does it mean the beginning? Does it mean how we, where we are now and how do we divide these periods? And I, I love the way the book deals so subtly with this. You, you do not make things simple in the book, but you make them clear. And I think that's a, that's a, an accomplishment. For Thanks. I'm, I'm having I'm having strands of fiddler on the roof go through my head as as you say as we talk about tradition. But um, no, but I, I just I mean you know to sort of put my cards on the table because I don't really in the book. I mean, 
it was really important for me to start with certiorari, not because I wanted to bore everyone to death right off the bat, um, but because certiorari actually is the bulk of the shadow docket. And, you know, yes, the sort of current events are focused on the emergency docket piece of this. But if you look at the broader history of the court, the real shadow docket is cert. And, and it's, it's a shadow docket that is actually directly responsible for the merit. I mean, I think I say at one point toward the end of the book that the merits docket exists in the shadows of the shadow docket. Um, and, you know, helping folks understand how that happened, like even the merits docket is contingent upon all of the strategic and tactical behavior that now gets baked into the certiorari process because of how this has all evolved since 1925. And this is essential as people are talking about court reform, and I do not think that this was part of the conversation. So this book is important for anybody who is rethinking how many justices, how many courts, how can we change things? This this really backs everybody up to see how this, which are the components. Another one that you highlight, and this was a chapter that I, I learned a ton from, had to do with uh, the Solicitor General. You know, I, I teach the court to undergraduates. I have never thought about the Solicitor General as the 10th justice, um, but you do. And uh, just briefly explain who the Solicitor General is, who, who appoints them, whom do they serve, and, and have we always had one? Um, you know, you tell a fascinating story about 2017 and the Trump administration and the Solicitor General, but, but start with with who this person is, when when did they come about, and then you know why does this matter? And it, it's such a fascinating contrast between political scientists and, and law professors, right? Because you know I, I, it wouldn't occur to me to not teach the, the solicitor general, but I could see how in a political science oriented approach they're less important, right? Um, so the this again, I, I got to tell some founding era history too, right? So um, the attorney general um, is created by the Judiciary Act of 1789. Um, not a Department of Justice, right? There was no DOJ until 1870, something I think a lot of people don't realize. Um, and part of that's a reflection of, you know, the founders, I think, ambivalence about an attorney general um, that, you know, the sort of, as opposed to the so-called great departments of treasury and war and foreign affairs will become state, um, the founders weren't really sure what the attorney general was going to do. Um, and so at the beginning, they only give him two jobs. Um, one is providing legal advice to, quote, the government, unquote, a beautifully vague term that seems to mean <laughs> everybody. Um, and the other is representing the United States in the Supreme Court. But Susan, not the lower federal courts, where it's actually up to the local U.S. attorney um, to do the job. Um, this means, right, the Section 30, whatever it is, of the Judiciary Act of 1789 actually uses passive voice to refer to who's going to appoint the attorney general because they couldn't decide. I love that um, part of the book. I just want to say I'll be using it because I'm always telling people not to use the passive voice and giving them examples. This is an excellent one. So thank you well, for and, that. And here's here's a deliberate use of passive voice for its purpose, which is to obscure responsibility. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the, the attorney general sort of doesn't have a staff until the 1820s, doesn't have an office until, the, like, it, his job is so, like, inconsequential. Um, by the 1860s, again, partly because of the explosion in litigation precipitated by the, the you know, massive shifts in the structure and, and powers of the federal government during and after the Civil War, um, there's now a felt need for a Department of Justice. And so as part of the 1870 statute that creates the department, 
of which the attorney general is the titular head, um, the statute actually creates a new position called the solicitor general and takes what was one of the attorney general's two responsibilities representing the United States before the Supreme Court and gives it to the SG. Um, and the Solicitor General is going to be appointed by the president. Now we're actually being clear about this. Um, but, you know, Susan, what's what's remarkable about that is the statute in 1870 is just as vague as the 1789 Act was about who the SG's client is. And historically, this has led to a series of fascinating debates about the, the, the Solicitor General's job. Like, does the Solicitor General represent the United States or does the Solicitor General represent the current president? Um, you know, in most cases, that's a distinction without a difference. But in the cases in which that distinction matters, it matters a heck of a lot. Um, and so you have at least until really the last, I don't know, 25 years, you have a tradition of solicitors general um, taking the view that their client is the United States, not the president, even though they serve at the president's pleasure and can be fired by the president for doing anything the president doesn't like. Um, And that, uh, I'm going to get the quote not quite right, but that justice is done whenever the United States is, you know, whenever the people of the United States are properly represented, even if the SG happens to lose that particular case. And the mentality there is that the Solicitor General has institutional responsibilities to the court um, that, you know, sort of don't make it a purely executive office where it's not the SG's job to do whatever's in the best short term political interests of the president, but rather to do what's in the best long term interests of the institution of justice as it is. Um, That's a, you know, that's not a consensus position. Um, right. But I think it's one that a lot of SGs over the years have taken. And it's, it stands in pretty sharp contrast to the behavior of first the acting SG, Jeff Wall, and then the confirmed SG, Noel Francisco, during a large chunk of uh, the Trump administration. You've drawn this kind of through line where these sort of changes happen over time, partly because the government itself changes, executive power changes, congressional power changes, the constitution changes, the court begins to, uh, as you say, be overwhelmed, and as well as some of the other federal courts. You've mentioned capital punishment as a sort of moment, a problem that the court deals with that... uh, the shadow docket becomes part of how they're dealing with it. Before we get to 2015 and the sort of biggest changes, what happens around capital punishment that the shadow docket becomes a tool for the justices? So this was, I mean, the, the, um, I don't know if everyone has this experience. This was my first book. So this is all new to me, but congratulations. um, Well, thanks. Uh, but, um, there was a moment where I wasn't sure it was going to happen because and this was the moment. So um, I knew where the book was starting and I knew where the book was ending and I had not figured out how to get from A to B. Um, and there's a moment, I, I remember it so well. I'm at literally this indoor play gym with my kids because it's a rainy Saturday afternoon and there's nothing else to do with them. And so they're bopping around and I'm sort of in my head. And all of a sudden it comes to me that like, you know, it's the death penalty, stupid. Um, and so the and the the to, to sort of put that in in more context, I realized that the bridge from the past to the present 
was how the Supreme Court handled the explosion in last minute um, death penalty emergency applications in the 1980s. Um, an explosion, we should say, of the court's own making. And so, you know, this is this ends up being chapter three of the book. Um, and it really is, I think, the it ends up being the perfect segue. I mean, in retrospect, it looks obvious. Um, it wasn't obvious until <laughs> until it was. Um, but so what happens, I mean, this is, you know, the old school approach to emergency applications and maybe not the worst approach to emergency applications was to have them go to the so-called circuit justice, the one of the nine justices who had responsibility for a specific geographic part of the country. And that had a bunch of pros. Um, pro number one, right, if you only need to find one justice, it's actually easier for them to be flexible. There are lots of examples of justices commandeering nearby courtrooms um, to have oral arguments or using their own chambers for oral arguments. So the, there's a tradition, Susan, of in-chambers arguments um, the justices would often write opinions where they don't need to share drafts with eight other people and get everyone to sign off on every word. It's just them. Um, and no one would confuse a ruling by a single justice with the ruling of the full court. And so you could sort of maximize um, transparency and process while minimizing impact. Um, that holds all the way through the 1970s, right? And all the way up to the early 1980s. And what changes is when the Supreme Court brings back capital punishment in 1976, it brings it back with all of these new rules, um, rules that are meant to make it less arbitrary, rules that are meant to make it more equitable, um, but rules that have to be enforced by courts. And because of a series of technical procedural doctrines, usually only once an execution date has been set, which means now we're talking about emergency applications because someone's got to freeze the execution if we're going to be fighting over whether these rules were complied with. So we see this explosion starting in 79 or 80 in how many emergency applications the court is receiving. Um, and a lot of these are from death row inmates, especially in Southern states, seeking to block their executions. And the court just has basically a heart attack. Um, and it starts shifting its procedures in ways that it never really articulated and that in retrospect don't necessarily seem wise. Um, so just a couple of really sort of small, but, but, but I think instructive examples. First, um, the court stops adjourning when it goes away for the summer. So until 1980, when the court rose for its summer recess, um, it was formally out of session which meant that if you wanted the full court to do something over the summer, you had to convince the justices to all come back to Washington and have what was called a special term, of which there were only five um, in the 20th century. Um, the court stops adjourning so that even when they're scattered to Europe and back, they can still act, um, right? Which opens the door to full court decisions on emergency applications. Um, the second thing that dies very quietly is in-chambers oral arguments. There hasn't been one since 1980. Um, it's not a coincidence, right? Once the, the norm is to have the full court resolving these applications as opposed to a single justice, there's less reason for in-chambers arguments. Um, and as we have this conversion to the full court handling all remotely divisive applications, what comes with it is the tradition of full court orders as opposed to single justice orders not being explained. 
um, basically borrowing from Sir. Which is fascinating. I, yes. I just love this part of the book because on the one hand, you think, oh, one justice, that's arbitrary. What? He's going to have them in his chambers. There's nobody there. There's no accountability. But actually there is because the procedures of making arguments, of having citations, of presenting precedents are all preserved, but yet with one one judge, one justice, and they move to something that sounds better because it's the whole court, but there was absolutely none of that of that exchange and and that not that parallel process yep. that is at the heart of Supreme Court or we think of as the heart of Supreme Court argument. And, and you know, I mean, I, it, what's fascinating about it is this all happens, you know, not under the literal cover of darkness, but it all happens without any public acknowledgement. I mean, the court doesn't even formally acknowledge that its rules change for adjournment. Um, until 1990. And, you know, you can understand maybe why the, I mean, you have some pretty, you know, staunch opponents to capital punishment on that court. You know, you have Justice Brennan, you have, you know, Justice Thurgood Marshall, um, right? And so maybe the, you know, the other justices are worried about giving Brennan and Marshall the power to basically stop executions in two ninths of the country. But it comes with costs. And, you know, those costs are born um, in the short term entirely in the death penalty context where no one notices because everyone assumes that, you know, to borrow the court's own phraseology, death is different. And so these really important shifts in how the court does business get completely sort of marginalized as just one of those weird things about capital cases. I mean, if you ask folks who clerked on the Supreme Court, in the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s, hey, what was the emergency docket like? They would say it was just capital cases. Like all they knew was these death penalty cases. And what that means is, one, there's never a reckoning about whether these changes were a good idea. Um, but two, it also means that the court starts institutionalizing these pathologies so that when you know cases start coming along in droves in the mid-2010s, um, that are asking the court to sort of use these pathologies in new contexts, the pathologies seem familiar. Um, and the idea that we're going to refer divisive applications to the full court, that we're not going to have oral argument, that we're not going to write an opinion. You know, Justice Alito can stand up and give a speech at Notre Dame Law School where he says, this is what we've always done, because at least if you look at how the court handled death penalty cases starting in 1980, he's right. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's why this chapter was so important for me because it was, it filled in not just the missing time period, Susan, but it filled in the move, um, how we got from the circuit justice model, the, the deeply imperfect, but actually usefully imperfect circuit justice model of the pre-1980 court to, to the model of today and, and to the, and to why the model of today has at its core, full court decisions without opinions and without argument. What's so interesting about Justice Alito's comment is that to suggest that our tradition begins in 1980 is something that he would reject uh, in terms of abortion, in terms of guns, in terms of voting. But yet, this is the line that he draws. And I think, again, it points to this arbitrary way in which uh, many people who talk about the court use this word tradition, which they hope will have a purchase on people that will be the reason without a reason. It is tradition. 
And it, I think, just signals to all of us how careful we have to be. And I think that's one of the great contributions of this a book, in, in, in addition to all of the specifics that you're revealing about procedure and the shadow docket. Um, so the book, as you say, and, and it's nice to hear the story about how you came up with the middle, is highlighting a continuity that, that the shadow docket it doesn't come about all at once. It's a result of a series of decisions and we're not covering them all because this is a complicated book and this is a podcast. Uh, but over two centuries, this happens. And But you are also insisting that something very special happens um, such that by the time we get to 2023, we, we see an ex explosion. And you think that there was a real radical shift and you identify roughly 2015 as when it takes place. So what happened uh, in 2015? And also, we haven't talked about you know, the fact that you started tweeting about this, and then you came to write this book. But you know, what drew your attention to this? And, and what is the this about, the, about what happens in 2015? So, I mean, for as long as I've been a law professor, I've been a nerdy Supreme Court watcher. Um, you know, you mentioned in the, in the intro, I mean, I'm, I'm both a Supreme Court practitioner and a uh, coverage person. Um, and so I've always been fascinated in not just what the Supreme Court does, but how it does it. Um, the sort of the more technical, obscure features of Supreme, the, the traditions, actually, if you will, of the Supreme Court. Um, so it's a very tradition-laden institution. And so, you know, starting in, I mean, Will Bode wrote his paper, you know, coining the term in 2015. Um, there are some scattershot examples of really high profile rulings on emergency applications in 15 and 16. And then we have President Trump come to office, which brings, you know, which occasions this remarkable uptick in the requests for the court to intervene through emergency applications in non-traditional spaces, right? Outside of the death penalty, where you know Trump is subject to all of these so-called nationwide injunctions against various of his policies by lower courts. And while he appeals those rulings, he also wants to be able to carry the policies into effect. And so this leads to a huge uptick in how often the government asks the Supreme Court for stays um, of these injunctions pending appeal. And Susan, that starts in the summer of 2017 with the travel ban. And so one of the weird things that happens is right off the bat in late June and early July 2017, there are a couple of very strange procedural moves by the Supreme Court um, that folks who are used to the regular ebb and flow of the court were befuddled by because they were odd. <laughs> um, and I started tracking them. Um, and, you know, for a while, all I was doing was just tracking them. Like it was no, you know, normative content. It was just descriptive because it wasn't what we normally track when we track the Supreme Court. And then the more this was happening and the more that the, you know, Trump administration was asking the court to intervene and the more that the court was agreeing to intervene, that's when it started to seem to me like it was worth trying to figure out, is this new? Is this different? When did this start? Um, and, you know, what's the historical baseline for it? And so, you know, it's really probably, I mean, the, the first sort of organized thing I ever wrote about this was for the Harvard Law Review. Um, I was solicited to write about the court for the Harvard Law Review's annual Supreme Court issue, um, looking back at the court's October 2018 terms of the 1819 term. And by that point, we'd seen enough of these that it looked like something weird was happening. And when I tried to sort of reverse engineer the weirdness 
um, you know, a big part of it starts with these doctrinal shifts in how a couple of the justices think about irreparable harm, basically one of the prerequisites for emergency relief that start showing up in opinions really in the early 2010s and the mid 2010s. And so the, the sort of the case law story um, is there, you know, you can, it doesn't start out of the blue in 2017. There was, there were these weird movements in 2012, 2013, 2014, but there weren't enough cases for the movements to be visible. And it's only when Trump comes to the fore with, you know, it's only when you get all these cases that now you have a body of decisions in which the movements become more visible. So is it an accident that it's a conservative, we just happen to have this very conservative court and we had this uh, precedent of using them in uh, capital cases that this happens? In other words, to, to what extent is this is this ideological or to what extent is this simply a matter of who is on the court at this particular moment in time? I think it's mostly an accident. Um, and I think it's, it's more a symptom of an accountability deficit than it is of an ideological commitment. Um, you know, there's no, I mean, if you, if you peel away the layers, right, the best principle justification for what the court is doing is not conservative in any meaningful respect. Um, it's really institutional. And, you know, I think the, the, the notion that a strong five or six justice democratic majority on the court wouldn't have behaved the same way if it was a democratic president being thwarted by lower court judges appointed by Republican president, you know, hard to sort of feel like hard to find any through line from conservative judicial philosophy to this behavior. Um, Instead, what it really smacks of, and this is where I think the, again, like the more cases there are, the stronger the critique gets. What it really smacks of is that pretty quickly, a lot of folks realized that the shadow docket was a very effective way of making policy without making law um, or of shaping policy without making law where, you know, take the travel ban, for example, um, Travel ban 2.0, not the version that's ultimately upheld by the Supreme Court, but the 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 worst the the, the intermediate bad version, um, right? Um, I I don't think there's any way to explain either the federal government's litigation behavior or the Supreme Court's behavior, other than that everyone was pretty convinced that it would not be upheld on the merits, but that a majority of the justices wanted to let the president carry it out until it expired anyway. Um, and the book walks through like the specific procedural movements and, you know, sort of jots and tittles that lead to this happening. But that pattern gets repeated where all of these Trump policies that no court is ever going to uphold are nevertheless allowed to go into effect because of emergency relief, where it becomes a way for the court to sort of let a Republican president carry out his agenda without blessing it. Um, and that I think is, is a real departure from how the, we had ever looked at the emergency part of the shadow docket before. And it's interesting because there's these arrows, um, the appointments to the court have always been political. FDR very carefully selected people who would support the new deal, for example. Um, 
But the micro research on every publication, job, uh, membership in the Federalist Society allows for a type of profiling that makes the rejection of somebody like Bork look quaint at this point. So I think one thing that we have that we didn't have uh, 20 years ago, in addition, is a is a very carefully selected bench. And currently, we don't have a parallel institution like the Federalist Society that comes from the left or from the Democrats, such that you you would you would sort of see that same kind of behavior. This is something political scientists are obsessed with right now. Is is this kind of um, uh, the creation of these majorities in a very very precise manner? I, I would just add to that. I mean, I, I I certainly think that's right, and I think another feature of it is that um, there's increased association, fair or not with those who show any modicum of independence, um, with the very kind of institutionalist behavior that might lead to, you know, not being sympathetic to the project of using emergency applications to advance policy agendas, right? Where, you know, a Sandra Day O'Connor, for example, I think would have had real problems um, with this kind of use of emergency applications in a way that I don't think, uh, you know, Justice Amy Coney Barrett necessarily does or Justice Neil Gorsuch. And, you know, that's, I think, again, it's not about ideology as such. It's about distance from the center, um, which can be in both directions in that respect. And her position as a state legislator, she was always um, far more politically reading of the situation. It, we've mentioned law teaching, and I just want to like make sure you know, like, of course, we teach the Solicitor General. I've just never really <laughs> called them the the 10th justice. Yeah. But I want to ask you a question about law teaching. I mean, you're suggesting that the court isn't providing reasoning to the public, to the press, you know, to the judges below. and And you're also you know, suggesting that um, the shadow docket makes it really hard to criticize justices for inconsistency in their arguments. They're not making the public reasoning or their vote known. Um, you know, and this has led to a lot of cynicism. And again, you're one of these people, though you remain very, very optimistic, I think, about the court. But, you know, I, I I'm wondering if you've changed the way you teach your law students constitutional law at this point. How much emphasis are you placing on the arguments versus these kinds of, you know, p- procedures that are either politicized yeah. or, or procedures that are being abused in some way? So, I mean, I've, I've changed my constitutional law class a bit. What I've really changed is my upper level federal courts class. Um, you know, federal courts is really the, I mean, it's often called the organic chemistry of law school. I think that's a bit unfair, um, <laughs> right? Federal courts is really, it's its the most, I think, institutionalist class in law school because it takes all of these disparate topics and uses the sort of the power and the structural role and the structural responsibilities of federal courts as the organizing principle. Um, and I, I have, I mean, as I've written the book, I have changed my syllabus a lot to really make a much bigger deal out of the court's institutional role, um, to make a much bigger deal out of the sort of the shape and structure of the court's docket. Um, And I think to give the justices a lot more agency in how much they are responsible for setting the terms of the decisions that we're used to reading in our other law school classes. Um, Not, not, and and Susan, I should say, not because I'm trying to be cynical, um, 
but rather because I think it is really important context for assessing the sort of the merits and demerits of the course behavior, where, you know, the, the story I want to tell my students is that for as outraged as many of them are about, for example, Dobbs and Bruin, um, that is the court behaving as a court um, versus the myriad ways in which I actually think the court is much more open to criticism for behaving in ways that are arrogations of judicial power, um, even if they're not as immediately controversial and directly impactful. You know, where I'd like to end has to do with cynicism versus optimism. I mean, this is a book that is, you know, presenting history in, you know, I think an even-handed way using a lot of evidence. You have a concern. There's just no doubt. And you make that very, very clear. Um, and throughout the book, you you emphasize your, con- your concern with legitimacy. And we know that the Gallup, Pew polls, they all show that Americans have less and less confidence in the Supreme Court, and they believe the court is functioning politically rather than juridically. So, you know, we have a potential uh, existential problem with our democracy, in particular when the Supreme Court is also deciding uh, issues that involve the vote. So then, as you pointed out earlier, because of the shadow docket, because these cases didn't go forward, it is possible that the midterm elections ended differently than they would have. That is a moment of crisis, specifically in a multiracial democracy that is changing and moving and the legitimacy of the country depends upon people being able to exercise their votes. Okay, so you're very concerned with legitimacy. You're concerned that this court be thought of uh, negatively and people to dismiss it. You love the Supreme Court. Like, I, I think you're, a, you're somebody criticizing because you love this. So as you know, if you could wave the wand and get us where we should be, what is it that we should be thinking about with the we meaning perhaps uh, the we, the people, the Congress, um, law professors, what, 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 what should happen? How do, in your conclusion, you call it bringing the Supreme Court out of the shadows? Um, I think there are two things. Um, obviously the first is everyone should read the book. Um, no, but I mean the, right. The, the first is I want to change how we talk about the court. Um, and I really, really want to get us out of what I think is a trap of viewing the court as the sum of its merits decisions, because I think that that both radically undervalues how much power the court has and it radically distorts the institutional pieces of the conversation that I think might not divide us quite so directly along partisan and ideological lines as obviously the merits cases will. Um, So the first thing is, if I could wave my magic wand, I would change how we all talk about and teach the Supreme Court so that the merits decisions are obviously part of it, but they're taught as part of this broader story about the institution. Um, And then the second thing related to that is I would, you know, use my magic wand to get Congress off of its butt and to, you know, to remind Congress that it's not just its, you know, power, but its obligation to exert institutional leverage over the other branches of government. I mean, back to the Federalists for a second, right? Ambition must be made to counteract ambition. And there's plenty of ambition in the court right now. And there's plenty of ambition in the executive branch. 
but there's no institutional ambition in Congress whatsoever. Um, you know, Democrats are mostly pushing back when there's a Republican president. Republicans are only pushing back when there's a Democratic president. And the result is a court that is as unaccountable as it has ever been. You know, we've had, Susan, in prior points in the court's history, a solid conservative majority. We've had a run of decisions that were deeply unpopular. That's not what's unique about the moment we're in. What's unique is that this court is doing whatever the heck it wants and is not remotely beholden to anybody else. Um, and so my hope is that these two things are connected, that the more we talk about the court in institutional terms and the more we're not just, you know, I like this ruling and I don't like that ruling, the more we realize how the absence of Congress is actually leading to an unsustainable um, power imbalance when it comes to how we are dividing powers within the, the federal government today. Well, Steve, I am so thrilled that you wrote this book. Uh, I've enjoyed your public-facing uh, comments on Twitter, but the book is, is, is truly phenomenal and, as I said, accessible to all readers. This is something that can be assigned to undergraduates, graduate students, law students. It's something that you can give to a relative. It's something that you can also use in your research. It will change how, for those of you who are specialists, as I am, it will change things. You will have to um, tweak things that you have said in uh, your publications and maybe want them back. Um, Steve, thank you so much for joining us um, on New Books in Political Science. The book is The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic, published by Basic Books in 2023. Thanks, Susan. Great to be with you.